Will you please turn with me in your Bibles once again this evening to the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, where we are going to be looking together at verses 5 through 11. Romans chapter 2, 5 through 11, and you can find that passage on page 1105 in your pew Bibles. Back in the very first chapter of Romans in verses 16 and 17, Paul gives to us the overarching theme of this wonderful book of sacred scripture. And you will undoubtedly remember that it centers on two very important aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first is that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. And the second is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. For the next two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, Paul then spends his time developing that second point. And in order to do that, he focuses in first on man's desperate need to be reconciled to Almighty God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul has laid out for us God's indictment against all of mankind. All of mankind is under the condemnation of God and the wrath of God against the idolatrous nature of man. And it can clearly be seen in the sin that Paul says is so pervasive in society. God has given man over to what his heart most desires. And apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we are told that man's desires are rooted in wickedness. Man is suppressing the truth of who God is. And the fact that God alone reigns. And as a result of that departure from God, man naturally follows the wants and the desires of his own depraved heart. And as he does so, he descends further and further into the abyss of utter foolishness. And Paul shows us that this is far more than simply the result of a character flaw in some as they make what are undoubtedly poor decisions. But in fact, this condition that all of mankind finds themselves in from the very time of their conception. We've all inherited our sinful nature from our first parents, Adam and Eve. And so we stand guilty of both the sin nature which we've inherited from them, as well as the sin which we commit daily against the perfect holiness and the most high majesty of Almighty God. And so the greatest need of all of mankind is for a righteousness that will satisfy the just demands of God's holy law. And that righteousness must be perfect. A righteousness that goes well beyond just the things that we do and the things that we say, one that even covers our flawed and corrupted hearts. The more this opens up to us, the more we begin to see that this righteousness must indeed come from outside of us. It must be foreign to us because it must be perfect. And so it lies well beyond the ability of even the most morally superior of us or the most upstanding of us, more than we could ever conjure up in and of ourselves. All mankind needs a righteousness that he does not and that he cannot possess by his very nature. 
And that is, of course, the bad news. And Paul has been giving it to us in a very forthright manner to drive home the fact that without the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, without the merciful hand of God imputing to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, mankind will be judged and will be found wanting and given over to his just deserts. The wrath of God against the sin of man is evident. It is against the Gentiles, the pagans who were among them. Paul had pointed to the obvious pervasive sin that was so abounding in their culture as proof of as much. They were doing things that ought not to be done and they were doing them in the light of day. Always descending further and further into utter foolishness. It's a fact that did not then and does not now need to be taken by faith. It was and it still is clear. And it was then and it still is all around us. And having pointed it out in the pagans, Paul then turned his undivided attention on the Jews themselves. The religious ones. And he said they too were guilty of the very same sin that separates man from God. He points them to their outward shows of morality and he tells them quite simply that it will not ever be enough. God requires the whole man. He requires even the heart of man. And so he shows them that they too desperately stand in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They too are guilty of doing many of the same things, if not in deed, then in heart. And it will not ever suffice. God demands more than just morality. He demands perfection of the whole man. The only difference between them and the pagans who were so easy to look down upon was that they knew enough to mask the immorality that was reigning in their own hearts. And so Paul again drives home his point in these two chapters. All men, all women everywhere need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week we saw Paul give to the pious ones among them a very Stern warning, not to take lightly the goodness, not to presume upon the kindness or the the forbearance of Almighty God. They stood in danger of doing such a foolish thing and setting their seared consciences at ease with what could only be called a false sense of security. God was and is long-suffering. He was and is patient. But his long-suffering and his patience are for a purpose. His patience with them in not destroying them and not giving them over entirely to their impure desires had very little to do with the level of supposed morality or with them having the blood of Abraham coursing through their veins. God's patience, his kindness in withholding judgment was so that they would be brought to a place of necessary repentance. God in His mercy was bringing them to the very place where where they would see God as He truly is, where they would see themselves as they truly were. And as a result of that awakening, they would see their sin and their need to flee to Jesus Christ alone for the grace of God that they so desperately needed. 
I said to you last week, repentance is far more than just saying that you're sorry. It's having a change of heart and mind. It's knowing that one needs what he is actually unable to give. And so he must look to God and plead for mercy. He must die to himself and cease his pursuit of self-preservation. He must be recreated. He must be born again. He must lay aside his lifelong quest for self. And he must live for the glory of another. And it should be his desire to do so. And beloved, that desire can only come from the hand of God himself. And so the Apostle Paul continues to paint this very vivid portrait of the judgment of Almighty God in the hopes that fallen man will cease and desist with deluding themselves. And beloved, as I've said many times in this section, we ourselves would do very well to hear him here. We must not cling, we must not hang on to any false comfort, but we must seek our only comfort in both life and in death from the only fountain from which it freely flows, the fountain of every blessing that truly is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So let's look together now at the Word of God as Paul continues to expound upon the perfectly righteous judgment of Almighty God that we too may be convinced to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ with nothing less than reckless abandon. Hear now the word of our Lord. As I read Romans chapter 2, again, I'll start with verse 5 and read through verse 11. This is Paul speaking, and he says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity that we have to look to your word this evening. We pray, Father, that you would clear our hearts and our minds of all those things that distract us, that we would be able to give our full attention to your word and hearing your word that through the power of your spirit we would be transformed by that word for your glory and we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Well I think that the more that I read and study the Bible the more I am often amazed at just how far we have fallen away from the true revelation of who God is and who we are as it has been revealed to us in the pages of the Bible. And an obvious example of this is seen almost every time that you sit and you listen to people fret and lament over the current condition of the world that we're living in. Our own government is failing to do or even to be concerned about something like justice. 
Ruthless dictators are rising up from the depths of obscurity and reigning ham-fisted over witless and unwilling victims. I hear it all the time. There is no justice. What we need is justice. We clamor for justice. As if a human conception of justice would truly rid the world of the effects of the fall and the effects of sin. And I'm afraid that it often trickles over into our attitude towards God's justice. We've all heard it, I'm sure. You ask your friend, your co-worker, your relative, the one who seems to be so upset and so righteously concerned with justice, why they do not fear the justice of God being brought down upon them. And if they do not reject the very notion of God out of hand, they say something like, why would God ever judge me? I mean, I'm a pretty good person. I've never purposely hurt anyone. I pay my taxes. I try to be honest. I make an attempt to do the right things. I don't feel as if I have anything to fear with God. I'm ready to meet Him. Why, I'm sure He'll even be pleased with all that I've done in this life with what He has given me. And of course, according to Scripture, the very source and standard of truth itself, it's simply never true. It's never true. It's always a bit ironic to me that the same people who expect more justice from the hands of men actually expect very little of it from the hand of Almighty God. And that's what we are considering in this text tonight. We're talking about the justice of God. Paul has set out to show that all of mankind is sinful. All of mankind is under the justified Righteous condemnation of God. And all of mankind can expect nothing less than perfect justice from God. It's the very reason that we so desperately need the gospel. And Paul illustrates that to us in at least three ways that I would like for us to consider tonight. The first thing that Paul drives home here is this. If we ever truly do understand the justice of Almighty God... It will, by necessity, drive us to our knees in pursuit of His mercy. And I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. But perhaps the first thing we ought to clarify here in this text is what Paul is most definitely not saying. This passage has often been used out of its context in order to try and bolster the erroneous idea that God is looking for some merit and the works of men, so that he may offer a credit balance of sorts for salvation. Good deeds that will be stored up by man in order to be used when he finally stands before the judgment seat of Almighty God for a final reckoning. And of course, the very idea of it flies in the face of the message of this epistle, and really of all of Scripture. And it's the very opposite of what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here. Paul is showing us once again the great divide that exists in all of mankind, all of humanity. All of humanity, all of mankind can be separated into two groups. Christian, that is those who have been born again, recreated in Jesus Christ. 
Those who have been made new creatures in Him with new hearts, new desires. Those who live now to bring glory to God through Christ, to enjoy Him forever. And there are those who have remained in the old man, in Adam. Verses 6, 7, and 10 are speaking of the Christian. While verses 5, 8, and 9 are speaking of the one who has rejected Jesus Christ and who continues to live as if the sun rises and sets on himself alone. And that's the divide. The gospel goes forth. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword and it cleaves this divide into all of humanity. Ultimately, it is God alone who sits upon the judgment seat. And it is God alone who judges according to His perfect will with no regard to what man himself has managed to accomplish. He judges according to His perfect will with no partiality. Remember what Paul is doing here. He has just warned the religious Jews in this audience against presuming upon the kindness of God. The same people who expect justice from God regarding the worthless pagans that are surrounding them expect God to grade their own hearts on some sort of a curve. Because of the level of blessing in their lives or because of who they are as the Jewish nation. And so Paul tells them, no, God will judge perfectly. And he judges with perfect justice. The only reward we are building up with our supposed merit is what? Wrath. Wrath in the day of wrath. Verses 8 and 9. Indignation, tribulation, and anguish. That's what we treasure up as mankind apart from the grace of God and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Regardless of the circumstances of our natural birth, regardless of the seriousness with with which we approach morality for God's sake, God does not grade on a curve. Even in the elect, God simply cannot overlook sin. And He does not ever do it. He poured his wrath, his righteous indignation, his cup of tribulation out upon Jesus Christ in our place for our sin. But he still judged it rightly. And he judged it with perfect justice. Sin receives exactly what sin deserves. So Paul wants us to know here that God will judge us based upon our works. But his purpose in doing so is not to spur us on to accumulating works for the sake of our salvation, but to show us that indeed no man will stand because of his works apart from the grace of Almighty God. If we really understand the judgment of God as Scripture reveals it to us, then we should never try or hope to try to stand before God on account of our own righteousness. We should instead plead with God. We should fall to our knees and plead with God for his mercy. You understand what Paul is saying here? We must flee to some other place for perfect righteousness. Or we will in fact be judged according to our deeds. And the very best of us 
will be found wanting. Do you understand, beloved? Again, Paul is pleading. He's pleading here with the so-called righteous, religious ones of his day to cease from finding any of their security in their outward morality that's not flowing specifically from heartfelt gratitude for what Jesus Christ has accomplished with his life, his death, and his resurrection. Morality for morality's sake will not satisfy God. It cannot atone for sin. God will not grade on a curve. He tells us plainly what is expected, and it is perfection. Nothing less. God will not trade your good deeds for your bad ones. He will not accept you based on your nationality or your supposed worth. God's justice is perfect justice. Therefore, there is no partiality with God. You might have a religious frame of mind. It may even make you appear to be the most religious, even outright zealous person that you or the people around you know. But it will not ever be enough to atone for the debt that you have run up in your sin. And God will cut you no slack on the day of judgment. If you seek to stand on your own works, then Paul is making it clear here that you will be judged for them. You will be found wanting. You will receive the just deserts of your works. And he tells you what they are. Wrath, indignation, tribulation, and anguish. That is what you will earn. That is what you will store up when you are pleading your works before God. That is, what you, that is what you will do. It is the equivalent to being on trial for your life and spending all of your time, all of your effort, all of your energy helping the prosecution build its case against you. That is what you're doing if you have sought to come to Almighty God On your own terms. Rejecting your sinfulness. Coming as it were on your own supposed merit. Wearing the wrong clothes. You are treasuring up all the wrong things. That's the great point that Paul's going to hammer home throughout this entire entire letter. Salvation is by grace. Judgment is according to works. We will be justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, or we will remain condemned in accordance with our works and receive God's perfect, holy, and right justice. Seeing God's justice clearly, beloved, ought to drive us to the place where we fall to our knees and plead for mercy and never clamor for justice according to what we have done. The second thing I want to point out here flows out of that, and indeed I've mentioned it to you already, and that is this separation, this divide that exists in all of humanity. There are those whose lives are God-centered and those whose lives are self-centered. That's it. 
When it comes to judgment, according to Paul, those who have acknowledged their sin and lived, verse 6, for the glory and honor of God, seeking immortality through Him alone in order to worship and glorify Him for all of eternity, will be given, verse 10, glory, honor, and peace. And those who are self-seeking, who have rejected the truth of who God is, of who they are, according to His revealed word, will be given those other things. There are the godly and the ungodly. There are the righteous and the unrighteous. And of course, that flies in the face of the dominant philosophy of our own day, humanism, which states that we are all one, seeking the good of the one. But according to Paul, humanity consists of two groups. Those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ and those who remain dead in Adam. Remember, Paul is speaking here specifically to the people who have believed and trusted in a hope that is categorically false. They were outward moralists and they were proud of it. They do not have any reason to think that they need the gospel unless they see truly that the judgment of God condemns even them. They must approach God on his terms according to his revelation in the gospel and not by their own self-imposed standards. Paul is getting at much more than just the fact that all of humanity exists in these two groups. He's giving us a glimpse of the different aspirations of each. He says that the believer aspires or seeks after glory, honor, and immortality. If we state it like that, it sounds like it is, a far, it is far from the humility that we would expect. But we must remember the contradiction set up here between living according to God and living according to self. The believer strives for glory. But ultimately, it is not his glory now. It is not to be glorified amongst men. Rather, it is the glory of being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It begins now. Through the process of sanctification, it finds its ultimate end when we are finally and completely glorified. When this corruptible flesh is replaced with what is incorruptible. When we are finally and eternally prepared to stand face to face with God himself and worship him upon his throne. So now we live to glorify God and to enjoy him all our days on earth. And ultimately, we live to be glorified and with him for eternity. That is what we live for. That is what we hope for. And it's not just wishful thinking. It's hope that flows from faith and the veracity of every promise of Almighty God. It is that hearty trust that every word of His revelation to us is absolutely and most certainly true. That's what we desire in Jesus Christ. We are made new. And our desires are for the fulfillment of every single word of Almighty God. It's the same with honor. 
In Christ, we seek not to be honored now amid men, but we seek the honor of being approved by God because of Jesus Christ. And immortality. We seek to not become immortal in this corruptible flesh, but the immorality that is the immortality that is promised for those who have endured through Christ. You are made incorruptible in the glory of heaven. Those who trade their drab clothing and rags of this world for the pure white robes of Christ's righteousness. Where they are made ready to worship the Lamb upon His throne in the glory of heaven. Do you understand, beloved? This one does not waste his time seeking the fickle approval of men but lives for the approval of his God, which has been promised to him in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His desires flow out of his salvation as being made a new creature in Jesus Christ, which assures him of his place in the beloved bride of Christ to be presented before the Father. This is how we're to understand our good works, God-centered, from vain works, man-centered. In the Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer 91, we confess as much. It asks this question, what are good works? This is the answer. Only those which proceed from true faith and are done according to the law of God unto His glory, and not so much as rest upon the opinion or the commandments of men. You understand, for those who have been covered in the perfection of Jesus, those who have embraced both the bad and the good news of the gospel by faith, these are the works that speak to our justification. Again, the catechism makes it clear for us in question and answer 60. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. How are you righteous before God? It's an answer that I hope by now we're all very familiar with, and I hope that we memorize it because it's so comforting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. That is, although my conscience accuses me, that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have never kept any of them and am still prone to all evil. Yet God, without any merit of mine, of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never committed nor had any sins and had myself accomplished all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. Beloved, you understand, this is what it means to be a Christian. We are justified by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely because of God's grace alone. And any good that then flows from us flows solely because of our union with Him by faith. You understand, by faith, faith that God gives, we take God at His word. We accept his indictment against us because of sin and we look to him for mercy. 
And by grace we find that mercy. And that he gave his only begotten son. Our Lord Jesus Christ to be what we could never be. Since the fall. Perfect. He alone was perfect in the eyes of the law. He alone was uniquely qualified to be that ultimate sacrifice for sin, being both God and man, being perfected through suffering. He alone paid the price and received upon himself the just wages of sin, death upon the cross. You understand, beloved, your sin was judged there. It was punished there. Your sin was nailed to the Lord Jesus Christ there. It was atoned for there. His righteousness, the only righteousness that will ever suffice, was given to you. And receiving it by faith, God gives you a new heart, a new desire, and a new longing. Rather than longing for self-worth, self-fulfillment in Adam, you are recreated to long for his worth, his fulfillment for you. And you now seek his glory, his honor, and immortality in him. Righteousness in Him. The only thing that you must do to be unrighteous is to reject Him as He is offered in the gospel. You will remain unrighteous. You will remain in the unrighteousness that you were born into and you will be judged according to your works. You will get justice. You will receive your promised storehouse of wrath, indignation, tribulation, and anguish. And so we arrive at the final point that I want to make here as we close. This is the divide. And there is no partiality with God. This is his judgment as he has so mercifully revealed it to us in his word. He will not go easy on your good intentions. He will not relent because you did some great things in the eyes of men or anyone else. He will not go easy because you you belong to a long line of faithful ones. You will either be judged by your works flowing from your self-sufficiency and be found absolutely wanting, or you will be judged by the perfectly righteous works of the Lord Jesus Christ for you which changes the nature of the works which flow from you as God changes the desire of your heart. So we're left once again to face the most serious question that we could ever face on this side of the glory of heaven. To which kingdom do you belong? What do you long for? What drives you in this life? What are you clinging to? A false sense of security where you yourself wrongly think that you have given God ample reason to go easy on you? Listen to me, beloved. Sin will be punished. God must judge. 
and he will either have it condemned he will either have condemned it and poured out his righteous wrath and indignation on Jesus Christ in your place or you yourself will be judged according to your works you yourself will get the justice you clamor for the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of self who do you bow before to which of these do you truly belong Beloved, only one is a kingdom of glory, honor, and immortality. The other is just another empire of dirt whose end is wrath, tribulation, and anguish. Whose banner will you stand under? Let's pray.